I thank each and every one of you for coming out and giving your Friday evening to a consideration of uh, the discussion of theology. It's not always the most popular thing to do on weekends. We're competing with the movies and TV and parties and a number of other things, but uh, you are dedicated people to be here, to be studying the Word of God with me tonight, and I appreciate your giving this evening, and I hope you can be back tomorrow as well as we will have two more sessions tomorrow, and then on the Lord's Day I will be preaching as well on the same theme of the distinctives of the Reformed faith. Before we get underway today, let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your holy presence this evening, knowing that because we are sinful and unclean, we have no right to stand before you, knowing that there is no reason in ourselves for you to take an interest in us and to love us and to welcome us into your presence, and yet we rejoice in the promise of your word and the assurance that it gives us that you do receive us and you are glad to have us in your presence and to receive our praise and to hear our petitions. For we know that we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our intercessor, and we ask that you might bless us this night as your people, that you might make us faithful to your word, and that you might teach us in that holy word to see more and more of your work and your sovereignty and your gracious plan for your people. We ask that you would educate us this night and strengthen us in our holy faith, not for the sake that we might have larger heads and feel more proud uh, that we have a theological system better than others, but rather that you would enlarge our hearts and give us greater obedience that we might bow the knee to you and serve you with greater fervency and fidelity and with truth. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Well, as you know, our conference theme is the distinctives of the Reformed faith. And I suppose that before I say anything else, I should make very clear that I didn't come out this evening, and I won't be here tomorrow, promoting the distinctives of the Reformed faith with the attitude that, well, there are all these different man-made theologies, and this is the one that I like the best. To be honest with you, at some points, if I were left uh, in my own devices, according to my own way of thinking, my own desires, I would not have come to the Reformed faith. I believe that the Reformed faith in many ways does not cater to the whims and desires and the thinking of man. It's not the sort of thing that we would imagine on our own. And the reason why we feel it's important to promote the Reformed faith is just that. Not because it's unpopular. In fact, I think the more you learn about it, the more you rejoice in it and see how wonderful it is. But you see, the reason we promote the Reformed faith is just that we know it isn't a man-made system of theology. We believe with all of our hearts that it comes from the teaching of God's holy word. And that's why we are obligated to believe the things that are presented as the Reformed faith and to live our Christian lives in terms of those things. To put it very simply, I believe the Reformed faith is Christianity come into its own. It's not Christianity version 33 or Christianity version 16 or Christianity version 7 and this is the one I happen to choose as being more in line with my personality and desires and preconceptions. The reason I am reformed in my theological outlook and the reason why that is what guides my teaching and my preaching is because I believe it is the teaching of God's holy word. And at that point no Christian has an option. No Christian has, you see, the freedom to say, well, I like to see it this way, I like to see it that way, and so forth. It has nothing to do with what we would like. It has everything to do with what God has told us. And so, even though we're calling this conference the distinctives of the Reformed faith, in a sense, it's the distinctives of Christianity. 
This is just what the Christian faith is all about, we believe. We do not want man-made systems. We do not want theology to be seen in that way, that it's just a party spirit. We want, above all, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to Him in the teaching of His Word. And with respect to His Word, we don't believe that the Bible should be likened to Play-Doh. I think many times when people get antsy about theological differences and when people get upset that there are all these man-made systems and uh, we don't need theology, we only need the Bible, that the reason why they dismiss theological discussion is because they think the Bible is like Play-Doh. That is to say, you know, you can press it this way and that and you can make this kind of system out of it and that kind of system out of it and it's really malleable. That is to say, it, it could fit any number of configurations. The Bible... Well, you could make the Bible say this, and you could make the Bible say that, and so forth. And I don't believe that for a moment about the Bible. The Bible cannot be made into just anything you would like it to be. It's not a wax nose to be pushed this way and pushed that, or to be made longer or shorter or whatever. The Bible has a system of truth in it. And to say otherwise is really to insult God himself. It is to suggest that God doesn't think systematically, that when God declares a truth, he is not consistent with it. The Bible has a system of truth, and it is our obligation to find that system and to proclaim it. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, very humbly but very firmly, is that I think that what we see in the distinctives of the Reformed faith best expresses that distinctive viewpoint, our outlook, that system of truth that God himself has given to us in the Bible, his own word. So we're going to be looking at four areas during this conference that summarize the distinctives of a reformational or reformed outlook on Christian theology or the Christian faith. These four areas, as you know in the program that you have before you, are the sovereignty of God. That's what we'll talk about in just a moment. And then in our second session, God's covenant with man and then tomorrow, Lord willing, as we regather for two more sessions, we'll talk about living in this world, God's creation, and then finally living in the church of Jesus Christ, looking at how he governs it. And so we're going to consider the sovereignty of God right now, God's covenant in our second session, and then tomorrow God's creation, and finally the church of Jesus Christ and how it is governed. In each of these areas, those who come out of the Protestant Reformation, those who proclaim the Reformed faith, say things which you don't hear in all churches. They have something rather unique, something distinctive to say, and we're going to want to find out what those things are. I hope that you have received at the door tonight, or can pick up even now, uh, the outline that I have prepared for these sessions entitled Characteristic Marks of the Reformed Faith. And you'll see our four different areas of presentation uh, there and then on the back side a summary of various things taught by Reformed churches that you can take as something of a thumbnail sketch of Reformed theology. Why do we call this Reformed theology? Let's begin right there. As you know, there are many people in this world who claim to be Christians. There are many professed Christians in this world, but they don't all agree with one another. They don't all teach the same thing. And it would be helpful for us to have some way of schematizing or outlining and understanding the major schools of thought that go under the name of Christianity. And so to do that, I'm going to lay out uh, basically five different ways of seeing Christian theology, and of course the Reformed is one of them, and that's what we'll be expounding. 
First of all, we might think of Christianity as it's presented in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, in this country, we probably would not have thought of that as one of the major divisions because there's not a whole lot of Eastern Orthodoxy here, although it is here. And under Eastern Orthodoxy, I would include uh, the Russian Orthodox Church and, and other churches of that general type. Eastern Orthodoxy is distinguished in church history from Western Orthodoxy, what we come to know as the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so you have the Eastern approach to Christianity geared really toward a more mystical faith, a highly ritualistic and um, a faith geared to the priest and to a kind of lifestyle that we would call mysticism. And then you have Roman Catholicism, which many of you know centered on the Pope, uh, the Pontiff in Rome, and uh, a veneration of Mary and the saints, the treasury of merit of the church, the selling of indulgences or the doing of penance in order to minimize one person, uh, person's time in purgatory, and things of that nature. So you have Eastern Orthodoxy, the Roman Catholic Church, and then you have those theologies that come out of the Protestant Reformation. And they can be broken down into three general classes of theologies. One would be the Lutheran branch of theology, obviously following Martin Luther. However, to be honest with you, what is known as Lutheranism today is really much more like the second generation Lutheran theologians, much more like Melanchthon and and men like that than it is like Martin Luther himself. But there's one branch of theological distinctives known as Lutheranism. Then there's another known as the Reformed branch. That's what we're going to be talking about in this conference. These churches align themselves in their outlook more with the teaching of John Calvin, who was another one of the major reformers at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And then thirdly, we come to what is often called radical or Anabaptist theology. Uh, This would be the theology of those Christian groups or sects which maintain the need for a pure and believer's church only and often teach doctrines about the Christian life that would say uh, we should, well, be pacifistic, uh, share property, uh, have a communal ownership of things that have um, a very distinctive flavor in terms of their understanding of Christian living and also their understanding of the way of redemption. So in terms of Protestant thinking, you have generally Lutheran-type theology, Calvinistic-type theology, what's called Reformed theology, and then finally Anabaptist or the Radical Reformation type of theology, which is um, uh, really unto its own. And in many ways, Anabaptists claim not even to be part of the Reformation. They believe they were um, the church all along and that they existed in in the Middle Ages as a kind of proto-reformation and uh, sometimes don't even want to be identified with the reformers. Okay, well, that's enough church history. That set of theological distinctives known as reformed theology is what I'm going to try to expound for you in the time that God gives me with you over this weekend. And tonight we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God. If you look at the state of Christianity today, I don't think it's an unfair characterization to say that many churches, and especially those which are larger and in a worldly sense successful churches, are not God-centered churches. Their emphasis, and I'm not saying that they don't believe in God, and I'm not saying that God isn't important, and I'm not saying that they don't go to the Word of God, but in terms of what they preach, what they are interested in, and what guides the decisions they make in terms of Christian living, they are not really God-centered. That is not the emphasis. The emphasis is more upon 
what suits me, what makes me happy, what will um, satisfy my desires or my preconceptions. And so you see, man comes to take kind of an important place. Churches like this will often have Bible studies where it is not considered out of place for people to say, well, I think this about God, or I think that about God, or to have uh, preaching series which will emphasize you know, that God has an affirmative attitude towards you, that you're really okay. Uh, you're okay and I'm okay and we all have to be happy. But self-worth is very important. Now again, something can be said for all of those distinctives. I don't mean to say that they are just absolutely false. But you see, in churches which are not Reformed, they come to be very predominant in the theological outlook and the methodology of the church. It can be said, I think, of the Reformed faith that it is truly God-centered. And it's God-centered because it emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all things. God has the first word, as you will see in just a moment, because he created everything by his powerful word. And God will have the last word in history because he will be the one who judges all mankind. And in between, because God is the first and the last word, everything that takes place in terms of the gospel and the salvation of men is there to magnify His grace, not simply our happiness. To magnify His grace, and secondly, to magnify His governing of all things. God is the Lord. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. And before Him, all mankind must bend the knee. God made us for that purpose. Man's chief end is to glorify God, that having been said, and then enjoy Him forever. For you see, in terms of a Reformed understanding of theology, God is the most important thing. God's Word governs our thinking. The glory of God governs our behavior. And when we look at our relationship to God, we give God the glory because we know that we were saved simply by His grace. I want to look at five particular aspects of the sovereignty of God in the uh, time that we have in our first session this evening. And they are before you in your outline. First of all, that God all-powerfully created from nothing all things, and God owns all things. This is the foundational plank of Reformed theology. You have to understand that we begin with the Creator God. And because He's the Creator, He owns everything. And because he owns everything, he has the right to dispose of it as he will. And so the Bible teaches us that God is the creator. We see this in the very first verse of the Bible, don't we? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that is speaking historically, to be sure. In the beginning of history, God created. But that also could be taken as the theme of Christian theology. In the beginning of Christian theology, remember, God is the Creator. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In the first place, it's by faith that we believe in creation. We don't believe in creation because we were there to see it, we don't believe in creation because we think that in some absolute sense it's provable by the scientific evidence, although the evidence is plain enough, it is there. We believe the universe was formed by the Word of God by faith. We come to that understanding because God has declared it to be so and we believe His Word. And what Hebrews 11.3 tells us is that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. When you look out at the world around you, 
you mustn't believe that the origin of that which is visible is also something else visible. To put it very simply, the author of Hebrews says, the invisible one made the visible world. Now what does that exclude? It obviously excludes any evolutionary or progressive understanding of the origin of the world. The world did, as we know it did not come from the world as we know it. The world is not eternal. The world did not develop on its own. But rather the visible world comes from the hand of the invisible God. And we believe that by faith. The Reformed faith is not committed to an evolutionary understanding of the universe or the world or of the animal kingdom or of man in particular. We believe the teaching of God's word that God created the heavens and the earth and he did so in the space of six days. And everything therefore is owned by God. In Colossians 1.16 Paul says, For by him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him, and now listen to this, and for him. Because he is the creator of all things, he owns all things, and all things are to serve his purposes. They belong to God. This is my Father's world. That hymn is exactly right in its opening premise. And in the Reformed faith, that is an important distinctive. God made the world, God owns all things, and all things must serve his purposes. Secondly, we believe that God wisely foreordained and providentially controls all things in this world. Uh, before we look at that, let me just give you one more text about God's ownership of the world that I'd like you to remember. In the 24th Psalm, which will be known to many of you, the very opening verse tells us that the world belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and they who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's, and everyone who dwells in it belongs to him. Now the Bible adds to this understanding that everything that happens in this world has been planned by God, is controlled by God. We do not have the understanding of God that he wound up the world with certain inherent mechanisms in it, certain laws by which it would run, that he wound up the world and then stepped back and let it go. And then God, as it were, is sitting in heaven looking down on earth saying, now I wonder what will happen. Boy, I hope this takes place, or I hope that doesn't take place. A God who is distant and uninvolved in the world. The Bible teaches that God not only made the world, but God is intimately involved in the world, day by day, minute by minute, controlling what takes place there. And he controls it not on a momentary basis like, well, I think I'll do this. No, no, I have to change my mind and do that. But rather, God has a wise plan for what will take place in the world. And this plan precedes even the creation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God knew in wisdom what he would do with the world and with the people that are in the world. And so we believe that the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God with respect to every event of history and every detail of our lives. He, ahead of time, ordains what will take place. In your Bibles, you might look at Ephesians 1.11, one of the best verses summarizing that perspective. Paul tells us, um, In Christ also we were made a heritage, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Notice how God is described by Paul. We have been chosen in Christ, made a heritage in Christ, 
and foreordained according to whose purpose? God's purpose. The purpose of him who does what? Works all things after the counsel of his own will. God is the one who brings about everything that happens. Everything that takes place. takes place by his will, by his choice, by his sovereign direction, by his counsel and will. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, verse 30, Jesus tells us that even the hairs of our head are numbered by God. Just so you have an idea of how detailed God's sovereignty is and how much he foreordains, the Bible says when you combed your hair this morning and you lost, whatever, four or five or 25 hairs, that God knew that ahead of time. He numbered it ahead of time, and he knows every bit of it. God controls this universe not just in the broadest sense that the planets don't run into each other, sometimes they do according to his plan, but not just in the planetary sense, but God's sovereignty comes right down to the most basic details of life, the most minute things, things that we don't even worry about often, the counting of the hairs of our head. But God has determined that. God foreordains everything. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 7. prophet Isaiah, speaking of the sovereignty of God, says, this is Jehovah speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am Jehovah that doeth all these things. God says everything that happens is based on my plan. Even those dark sides of life, if you will. God not only does the wonderful things that we praise him for, but God also is responsible for the evil that we see about us. That, too, is part of his plan. God has not left anything to chance. God does not step back and say, well, there's some other cosmic, universal force that determines the outcome of history. God alone determines the end from the beginning. His plan covers all things. Now, this is going to bother us because... In our natural human reasoning, we say, now wait a minute, if God planned everything in advance, then I'm a puppet. I don't have any freedom. And I know that I'm free. I certainly feel like I'm free. And if I weren't free, I wouldn't be responsible. And consequently, this just can't be true. I would imagine that those of you who have come to the conference tonight have run into that thinking, whether it's put in those words or not. You know that people tend to respond to the idea of the sovereignty of God by saying it can't be true, God can't predestinate everything. God can't foreordain everything because then I'm just a puppet. I'm just an IBM punch card, as it used to be said. I'm just a robot. I don't have any more will or freedom of my own. Now, what's the problem with that thinking? The problem with that thinking is that isn't what the Bible says. Because the Bible says we do make our own choices and we are responsible. Uh, let's just look at a couple of illustrations of that. Uh, Joshua 24:15. Many of you will know this verse. It might even be a plaque that hangs on your wall at home. Joshua 24:15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve Jehovah, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. Choose you this day, Joshua says. You notice no one comes and says, wait a minute, Joshua, you've forgotten the sovereignty of God. We don't have any choice. We're robots. We can't choose anything. No, Joshua calls upon them to choose. And therefore, in terms of the outlook and teaching of God's word, whatever the so- however God applies his sovereignty to this world and to the choices we make, it does not take away our freedom. 
does not take away our responsibility. You say, well, I don't know how God can do that. And as a theologian, I have to tell you, without trying to be flippant, my response is, yeah, so? You can't understand how he does it. I don't know how he had a virgin have a baby. I don't know how Jesus walked on water. I don't understand the triunity of God in the sense that if it were up to me, I could work it out myself. I can't bring it about that you do my will and yet you do it freely, but God can. And the fact that God is able to do things which I can't, in fact, he can do things which are even beyond my understanding, is not a surprise at all. It's to be expected. And here is one of the major watersheds in terms of Reformed theological thinking. There are those who say, if I can't understand it, then it can't really be what's taught in the Bible, and so we're going to have to make some adjustments. And then you have those who say, if I can't understand it, if it is taught in the Bible, I must nevertheless believe it and apply it. Which comes first? Faith in God and the truth of his word, or faith in my reasoning ability and the clarity of my own thinking? Well, from a Reformed standpoint, God is sovereign. And that even means he's sovereign over my thinking and understanding. And so if he teaches things like miracles, and he teaches mysteries like the Trinity, and if he teaches that he is sovereign and has even determined the evil things of history ahead of time, and yet we who do those evil things are responsible, then I have to say it's marvelous. I don't know how he does it, but it's true. And I'd like to illustrate that um, very... um, fact from Acts the second chapter verse 23 that God does foreordain evil things and yet he holds men responsible for the evil that they do. Acts 2 verse 23 this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and speaking of Jesus Christ he says him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slay whom God raised up so forth. Notice what Peter says. On the one hand, God by his own determinate counsel planned that Jesus would be crucified. And yet you did it by the hand of lawless men. You are wicked and guilty for what you did. And the reason for that is when Jesus was crucified, no one was there going, oh no, 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 I don't want to crucify him. I can't drive this nail into his hand and so forth. And yet there was some kind of cosmic force that just forced the hammer down and made them do that. Peter says, you did this. You chose it. Indeed, you cried out for the crucifixion. You did what you wanted to do and God holds you accountable for it. And yet, marvelously and mysteriously, he planned it all along. You were not puppets. You are responsible for your actions. And yet, your actions still come under the sovereign disposition and plan of God. So the Reformed faith magnifies the sovereignty of God and that we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He owns everything and everything serves his purposes. And secondly, God makes everything serve his purposes because he has planned out every detail of history down to the very hairs of our head and in so doing does not deprive us of our freedom and responsibility but holds us accountable for the choices, true choices that we make. Well, then thirdly, we come to the area of salvation. What shall we say about the salvation of men? Why are some men saved and other men are not? Well, we have plenty in the Bible to look at to answer that question. But you know, in a sense, you could answer it from what little I've given you already. If God is the creator and owner of all things, and if God controls everything that happens, then ultimately the reason why some people are saved and some people are lost is going to be because that's the way God planned it. 
But you see, it's more than simply God's general sovereignty and foreordaining of events that the Bible teaches us. In particular, the Bible is jealous to teach that when it comes to salvation, our salvation depends upon God's work in our lives and not upon our own accomplishments and what we have done. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God. Now, Calvinistic or Reformed churches emphasize this teaching of predestination, that God has chosen the saved in advance and has worked in their hearts to draw him to, to himself, and therefore they are to glorify his grace in their salvation. Arminian theology, which, by the way, comes later in history, Arminianism was a protest against the teaching of the Calvinistic churches. Arminian theology maintained that that is overemphasizing, if you will, the sovereignty of God, that we need to see that there's something in man that has to be taken account of. And in particular, Arminians denied that man is totally depraved and without ability to do anything for himself. Arminians denied that the election of God, the choice of God of who will be saved, is unconditional. They said, no, it's based on what God would see in advance will take place. They denied that Christ died for his people and said rather he died for all mankind, but not all mankind benefits from what he did. Arminian theology denied that when the Holy Spirit goes to work in the heart of a person to draw them to the Savior, that that is irresistible. They denied the sovereignty of the Spirit in drawing men to Jesus Christ, and they also denied that the saints persevere to the end. They said that men uh, are able, by their own choice, to, if, if you will, a fall out of the realm of salvation, to, to deny the previous choices they had made and thereby lose their salvation. Against that, the Calvinistic churches at the Senate of Dort proclaimed what now come down to us in history known as the five points of Calvinism. I've often had people say, well, why do you Calvinists you know, emphasize these five points? I mean, why do you have to come up with that? Well, the answer is we were answering the Arminians. That's why we've got five points here. But as you can see from the outline on this page, I don't believe this is the whole of Christian theology. It's not even the whole of the Reformed faith in its distinctives, but it's what it's probably best known for, the five points of Calvinism. Let's look at them real briefly. First of all, against the idea that man can do anything for himself, Calvinistic churches teach the total depravity of the natural man. What does the Bible tell us about man? First of all, the Bible tells us that man in his natural condition has a very bad master. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, John 8:34. We're not looked upon as people who have a lot of freedom. We're seen as slaves, slaves of sin. And in Ephesians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the children of disobedience among whom we also all once lived, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, and were by nature children of wrath. That's how we come into this world. Not people that have a lot of free will, morally speaking. You know, not people who have done some good and some bad, but those who are children of wrath, children of disobedience, slaves of sin. The Bible says we have bad hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it, Jeremiah asked in the 17th chapter of his prophecy. Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, declares, From within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, greed, malice, deceit, 
lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and all folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The Bible uniformly teaches that there's something drastically wrong with man from inside out. His heart is bad. He serves a bad master. And man is unable to do what is pleasing to God. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. In 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 14, Paul makes it unmistakably clear that the natural man is unable to please God when he says, Now the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And he cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so the Bible tells us it isn't as though man has a little bit of good and a little bit of evil and he needs to apply his free will to maximize the good. In fact, the Bible doesn't even teach that man has the ability to respond to the gospel. When the gospel is preached, it's preached to dead men. And dead men don't come forward to receive Jesus because they don't have it in their hearts to do anything what is right. My former seminary professor, Dr. Van Til, put it very well when he said, even if you could devise a serum that would bring dead people to life, it would do you no good to go into the graveyard tonight and proclaim, all of you who will exercise your freedom to come forward and take this medicine will live. Because dead men can't choose what is right. They can't even choose to live because they are dead. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin." And so to understand the magnification of the grace of God in the Reformed churches, you must first understand the very bad news about man. Not only is man wicked and corrupt, nothing good in him that pleases God, but he is unable to please God. He cannot submit to the law of God, cannot submit to the things of the Spirit of God. He's dead. That's very bad news. But you see, if you understand that bad news, then you know how sweet the good news is. Because if it doesn't depend upon me because I'm unable, then if I find that I do have faith in Jesus Christ, it must be a glorious gift, isn't it? It's something that He's done for me. I love Him because He first, first loved me. And my ability to understand the gospel and believe it is not of my own doing. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. There is no boasting in a consistent Calvinist. Now, of course, Calvinists have been guilty of having bad attitudes and boasting and being proud. But if ever there were a system of theology to slay the pride of man, it is Calvinism. For it says, even the faith I exercise is a gift from God. Now then, that brings us secondly to the question of who receives this gift of faith. The Bible says... God the Father has chosen those who would belong to Him. That He has elected them from the foundation of the world to belong to Him. And His electing of them was not based on any good in them. It wasn't based upon seeing faith in them in, ad in advance. It was based simply upon His mercy. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, For He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight, 
In love he predestinated us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, he says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestinated according to the plan of him who works everything after the counsel of his own will. Why do some people believe and other people don't? Because God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world. And he chose them not with respect to any good that he saw in them in advance, looking down as it were the corridor of history through his crystal ball. He says, oh, I see so-and-so will believe on Jesus, so I think I'll choose him. That's not predestination. That's post-destination. God sees the choice you'll make, and then he says, okay, I ratify that. What an ugly and discourteous view of the sovereign God presented in the Bible. The Bible says he predestinated us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Uh, in Romans, the ninth chapter, Paul is adamant about this. And we can't read the whole thing. I will preach the whole evening on this if I am not careful. Let's just look at a few of these verses. 11 to 13. For the children being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that called. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, even as it stands written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Look at verse uh, 13, excuse me, not 13, look at verse 18. So then he hath mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. Verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? Now listen, vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he afore prepared unto glory. God has made the vessels the way he will. And of course, Paul in this chapter replies Isaiah's words about the potter. You don't say to the potter, if you're the lump of clay, why'd you make me this way? God has made some out of the same lump of clay. He's made some that are, if you will, uh, toilets. They are vessels of dishonor, fitted to destruction. And out of the same clay that makes the toilet, God can make a beautiful vase, something that brings glory to his name. Out of the lump of humanity, God has determined ahead of time what he will do with this and what he will do with that. And Paul says, and who are you to talk back to God? God has chosen his own from the foundation of the world, and he's done so unconditionally. Not based on any good or bad the children have done, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God declares these things. Well now, if God the Father has chosen a people to himself, when God the Son comes into this world, for whom does he lay down his life? Are we to imagine that the Father and the Son are in competition with each other? Are we to imagine that God the Father has chosen some people to be saved and others not to be saved, and yet Jesus laid down his life for all mankind? Of course not. If you believe that, you don't believe in the Trinity. You believe in polytheism. You believe in a God who was known as the Father and a different God known as the Son, and then a third God known as the Holy Spirit, and they're in competition with each other. If God the Father has chosen a certain number to belong to him, God the Son died for that certain number. And this isn't just a matter of you know, working out the details of a systematic theology. This is at the very heart of what we proclaim as the substitutionary atonement. For I believe with all my heart in terms of my salvation that Jesus died for me. 
And if I cannot believe that he died in my place, then I have no basis for confidence before God that I shall be forgiven, that the price has been paid for my sin. In Galatians 3, verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ became a curse for me if I am saved by him. In 1 John 4.10, God loved us and sent his Son as a propitiation for our sins. Or Hebrews 9.12, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus did not die on the cross as a blank check of salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for his people and he paid the price. He obtained eternal redemption for them. All those for whom Christ died will therefore be saved. And you know why that is true? Not only because the Bible declares it. He's obtained salvation for those for whom he died. But if Jesus paid the price of sin, if he became a curse for us, if he became a curse for any individual, that God the Father then judges with eternal damnation, then God the Father is punishing for sin twice. Once in his Son who became a curse, and then cursing those for whom Jesus became the curse. And that, of course, is an insult to the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God the Father. Jesus did not come into this world as a separate God to compete with the Father. He came into this world to die for his people those whom God the Father had chosen and given to him. And when he died on the cross, he didn't die as a blank check. He died and paid the price. There is no more condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And so the Reformed churches have always taught that the atonement of the Son is limited to those that have been chosen by the Father. Jesus died particularly for his people. What does Jesus say in John the 17th chapter in his high priestly prayer? For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Could anything be clearer? Jesus said, I am not praying for the world. I am not interceding for each and every individual who lived. I am interceding now as the Savior of your people, those that you have chosen and given to me. After Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so the Reformed Calvinistic churches have always been in the forefront of proclaiming the substitutionary atonement of Christ and therefore the particular, or if you will, limited redemption of Christ. I don't like calling it limited. In our day and age, that makes it sound like there's something defective about it, something wrong. But if you will, you must think about it the following way, as Spurgeon once put it. Do we have a limited redemption because we preach that Christ died for his people? Well, of course not. It's really the Arminian that has a limited view of the atonement. Because on Arminian premises, what Jesus did is a bridge that has to go across the chasm, and the bridge goes only so far and then stops short. But it's a very, very broad bridge, and every man is on it. And so Jesus died for all men. It's a very broad bridge, but it doesn't take us to the other side. The last step is yours. Even if it's but a small one, that last leap has got to be your choice. And of course, as we've seen, no one will make that choice because they're dead. So you've got a broad redemption. Spurgeon said that's a limited redemption. 
But the redemption that we proclaim based upon God's holy word is a redemption that takes us from one side to the other. And it's all of Jesus. It's all based on his work. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. God will require no more. Yes, we must have faith in him. But the faith that we have is God's gift. It is what puts us in connection with the Savior. But it does not lay a foundation or, if you will, complete the bridge to the other side of salvation. We believe, fourthly, in terms of God's sovereignty and salvation, that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men to irresistibly draw them to the Savior. When the Spirit works in our hearts, He does so in a way that will be successful. We cannot ultimately resist the work of the Spirit. Of course, we've already taught the unity of God. Jesus came into this world not to compete with the Father, and likewise the Spirit doesn't compete with the Son. The Spirit only applies salvation. The Spirit only changes the hearts of those who belong to Jesus Christ, the Savior. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in Romans 1, verse 6, and Romans 8, verse 28, we read, You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You have been called according to His purpose. Now when God calls, does He get an answering machine? Does He get those who hang up on Him? Or is it the case that when God calls, the message gets through and it accomplishes that which God sent it to do. Of course, you know Isaiah says that God's word goes forth and doesn't return to him void. It will accomplish what he intended. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When God calls us, he draws us to himself. And he does so by means of a convincing testimony of the Spirit. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And yet Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came? He said, No man can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born from above, born by the Spirit, unless he is born again. The Holy Spirit gives us new life. Remember I talked about going into the graveyard and and telling the corpses, come forward, and you can have this life-giving potion. Well, God does better than that. He takes His Holy Spirit and He brings life out of dead bodies. You were once spiritually dead, but now you live again in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And He does this work powerfully, persuasively, convincingly. And those who are called by the Holy Spirit will definitely come. And we also teach, in terms of God's work and salvation, that if we have been born again, if Christ has died for our sins, particularly as His people, if God the Father has called us from all eternity, then we will indeed persevere to the end. We will not throw away our faith. You say, well, Dr. Bonson, I know people who were once Christians. 
and they stop being Christians. And I know sad stories like that too, but you don't describe it properly when you say they were Christians and they threw away their salvation. What you want to say is they once professed Christ and they no longer do so. And I know that happened. That is true. But what the Bible teaches is that those who belong to Jesus and profess Christ will never fall away. They will persevere to the end. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, Paul says, in, excuse me, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has said, Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. On the one hand, the Bible calls us to make our calling and election sure, to be sure that we never fall. And yet we are told that we're protected by the power of God. God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible. And those that God has sovereignly called to belong to Him will responsibly persevere in faith to the end, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the temptations, regardless of the work of Satan. They will persevere to the end. And we can have that confidence because we know that in the end our salvation is based on God and not upon our effort. It's based upon God's power, not upon my puny ability to please Him. So let's summarize what we've seen thus far before our final two points are made in this first session. The Reformed faith teaches that God is sovereign. He is the first word. He created the world by His own speaking, called it into existence, and He owns it all and can dispose of it as He will. Everyone in this world belongs to Him and must serve Him. Secondly, we believe that God wisely foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He controls every event down to the very hairs of our head. And yet in so doing, He doesn't deprive us of our freedom or our responsibility. That's a great mystery, but it is taught in the Bible and we believe it. And when it comes to the area of salvation, we magnify the grace of God. Because we know that being totally depraved and unable to please God, we didn't become Christians in our own strength or wisdom. It's not as though we're better than others, and that's why we're Christians. We became Christians because God the Father, from all eternity, chose us to be His own. And Jesus came into this world and particularly died for His people, making a substitutionary atonement for them. And the Holy Spirit powerfully applied that salvation to my heart, giving me life from the dead, and calling me to belong to God, and producing the gift of faith in me that I might understand and submit and be drawn to Jesus Christ. And having been drawn in the powerful grace of a sovereign God, I will persevere to the end. No man will pluck me out of uh, Jesus' hand any more than he will pluck anything out of the Father's, for God is sovereign over all. And so you see the grace of God magnified here. Fourthly, the Reformed churches teach that this same sovereign creator gracious God will establish his dominion in history over all opposition. Yes, the world is in rebellion against God, yet this is God's world. And God will call it back to himself. And he has and shall continue to establish his own sovereign prerogatives here in this world. Let's look at Isaiah the 40th chapter, and I'll do my best to resist preaching this because it is a fantastic chapter. Easy to get carried away Isaiah 40, I'll begin at the ninth verse. 
O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and will gently lead those that have their young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of Jehovah, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are accounted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the islands as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The image of a workman hath cast it, and the goldsmith overlay it with gold, and cast it with silver chains. He that is too impoverished for such an oblation chooseth the tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a skillful worker to set up a graven image that will not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth princes to nothing, that maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they have not been planted. Yea, they have not been sown. Yea, their stock hath not taken root in the earth. Moreover, he bloweth upon them, and they wither, and the whirlwind taketh them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, that I should be equal to him, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who hath created these that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and for that he is strong in power, not one is lacking. That's the God. That's the God who comes into this world to establish His kingdom and His sovereign disposition. And the nations are before Him as less than nothing. Will they resist Him? Jesus said to Peter, You are Peter. Upon this rock I'll establish my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against me. No, the sovereign God comes into this world in the purpose of His Son to establish a kingdom that shall last forever. And he will not have to struggle to do it. The nations are like grasshoppers before him. He will have no difficulty in establishing his dominion in history. And this is another important part of the Reformed faith. We do not believe this is the late great planet Earth. We do not believe that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. We do not believe that somehow we're subject to all these horrible spiritual powers of darkness. But rather, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And because of the sovereignty of God, we believe that the kingdom of Jesus Christ will, indeed has been established on the earth and will prosper. In our next session, we'll talk more about that. The last point to be seen tonight is that at the end of history, God will have the last word. At history's end, all men will be subject to God as judge. Revelation, the 20th chapter, 
verses 11 to 15. Revelation 20, at the 11th verse, I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, even the lake of fire. And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. The day is coming when all mankind will stand before God, finally. And all those who denied that he was God, and all those who denied that his will was sovereign, and all those who thought they could live unto themselves will be judged by him, and God will have the final word. Yes, he is sovereign. Behold your God, Isaiah said. What a God. He created the heavens and the earth, and he controls everything that takes place in history, down to the very hairs of your head. And if you are saved, it's only because you as a depraved sinner have been called by the Father, redeemed by the Son, given new life by the Spirit, and persevere in His power. He has established a kingdom in this world which the nations will not be able to resist, and even hell itself will not be able to stop it. And at the end of history, all those who have refused to bow the knee and submit to Him will be judged by Him. Behold your God. The Reformed faith distinctively and uniquely proclaims the sovereignty of God. And in our next session, we'll see that this sovereign God has chosen to redeem us and save us by means of a covenant. And this God is a God of unity, continuity, power, and promise. Hope you can be with us.